So last week, we uh, ended with chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 23. And it ends like this. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Well, let's back up for a second. What, is it, what are these things that have an, an appearance of wisdom? It's this idea of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's this idea that in order to be holy, in order to be righteous, you have to do these certain things. You have to do these things and you have to avoid these things. And so he's laying this all out and he says, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body. And we see people that are living in like these legalistic ways all the time, right? And it seems like, man, they've got it together. It seems like they're going to conquer the flesh by all of these rules and regulations of do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, all of these do's and don'ts. And if we just follow the do's and don'ts of life, then we are, will conquer our sin, But then he finishes it with, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are of no value. All of these self-made religious items, all of the self-made religious do's and don'ts of life are of no value to stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And that introduced these slides. Let's take a look at these slides. Not these slides. We've got some other slides. There we are. There's the slides we want to look at. So we've got that introduced these slides to us. And these slides were created by a great pastor out in Nebraska called, his name is Brian Clark. But uh, when I saw him present these slides once and I thought, man, this is so amazing. This is like life changing. And so I bring them up every now and then. And this is the second week. But we're going to make a mad dash because we did. We spent a long time explaining these slides last week. So if you want more information, contact me or connect, come to me after the service, but we, we kind of dove into this last week of, uh, you know, when it comes to legalism and license, oftentimes Christians look at it and they think this is how we live, that there is legalism on one side and there's license on the other side, and as long as we find some kind of balance point in this, then we're going to be all right. And so we looked at the next slide and we saw most people kind of land somewhere along, somewhere over here, all right? So like if If you are that arrow, you might land a little bit more towards legalism. Like you know the pain of sin. You know you don't want to experience the pain of sin. And so if you just land a little bit more to the don't handle, don't taste, don't touch kind of side of life, then you're going to be all right as a Christian. But then let's go to the next slide. We learned that that's not the real tension in Christian living. The real tension isn't between legalism and license. The real tension is between the spirit and the flesh. Are you being controlled by the spirit? Are you submitting yourself to the spirit? Or are you submitting yourself to the flesh? And that left the question of like, well, what does that, how does legalism and license play out in that? Let's go to the next slide. So this is how that plays out. Both legalism and license are on the side of the flesh. Both legalism and license are being controlled by the flesh. So license is giving in to the flesh, right? We're just going to go out. Christ has died for my sins. I can can sin all I want. And there's freedom. There's grace. And so I just give in to the flesh. Whereas legalism is trying to conquer the flesh through fleshly means. And that's where that verse 23 really hits home. Legalism is trying to conquer the flesh through fleshly means, and it seems like it has an appearance of wisdom, doesn't it? It seems like, hey, if I really want to quit lusting after women, 
then I just have to try harder. If I really want to stop being angry and yelling at my kids, then I just have to try harder at being more patient. And if you're anything like me, especially when it comes to your kids, if you're anything like me, that actually kind of sets it off even more, right? Because I'm going to try really hard to be patient. But sometimes my kids do a really good job of being annoying. Parents, have you ever experienced that? Like, you, you're, you wake up that day and you're like, I am going to be a good dad today. I am going to be patient and I'm going to be gentle. But by the 500th, 500th question that you've already answered, you're kind of losing it. You're a little bit on edge. And then they come to the dinner table and they start tapping on things and everything becomes a drum. And then there's this really, this fight that is just, kind of stupid. Like, you're like, why on earth are you guys fighting over this? Jen's mom used to always say to her, to her family, you guys would fight over a booger. And like, I always thought that was like this, a, a really horrible saying until I had kids. And I was like, it's true. And so all day long, you've been putting up with like the 500 uh, questions and the, the annoying noises. And then there's this fight over something that you're like, why on earth? Both of you think it's trash and you're still fighting over it. And all of a sudden, the outburst of anger comes. And you're kind of angry because you told yourself, I'm going to be a good parent today. I'm not going to get angry. And here I am angry, right? It seems like it has an appearance that you can conquer the flesh with the flesh, but you can't. And actually, the more you try to conquer the flesh with the flesh, the more difficult it becomes and the more entrapped by the flesh you get. And so that's why legalism and license both are on the side of the flesh. So let's go to the next slide. So this is kind of how this theory works out. So when you are in legalism, discipleship theory, how you grow in the faith, you're walking along, you're doing your works, you think your works can save you, you realize that you can't be saved by works. So you put your faith and trust in Christ. And then you think, in order to grow in Christ, in order to grow in the righteousness of Christ, I need to work harder. That's the theory. Let's go to the next slide. But in reality, how this works out is the more you try, the more you fail. And, you jump, and when you fail, because your righteous is based on yourself, and is based on your works, you fall into shame. And then you enter into the sin-shame cycle. You work hard for your righteousness, you fell, you fall into shame. And you stay into shame until you work really hard, and all day long you've been working really hard at not being mad at your kids, until you fell. And then you burst out in anger at your kid, you yell at your kid, and what do you do? Experience shame. Because I wasn't supposed to. I'm a Christian. I'm better than that. I know better. God has called me to something better. You work really hard at not lusting after the other sex. You work really hard at not looking at that thing that you told yourself you wouldn't look at all week. And then you fell. And because you were trying to earn your righteousness by this work, and you fell you fall into shame. And you stay in that shame until you work really hard again until ultimately you fell. And you're stuck in the sin-shame cycle. So let's look at the next slide. So this is the reality, though. You're walking along. You're not saved yet. 
You're thinking works can save you. You realize that somehow everything's messed up in this world, and, and if I just work hard enough, then I'll be saved. And you realize the failure of all that, and you put your faith and trust in Christ. And the second you put your faith and trust in Christ, whether you've been on several missions trips and you've lived like a really saintly type of life, or whether you're a prostitute who just got high last night, the second you put your faith and trust in Christ, He makes you righteous. He imputes His righteousness to you. You do not earn it. You cannot become more righteous. You cannot become less righteous. And so you might ask, well, where do my works come into play with all of this? What about righteousness? And let's go to the next slide. So Christian living, we grow into the righteousness that he is imputed upon us. We mature into that righteousness. I don't make myself more righteous. Conversely, I can't lose my righteousness. He makes me righteous. He makes me holy. He makes me pure. He has justified me. I then get to mature in that. Now, if I never matured in that righteousness for the rest of my life, let's say I live another 40 40 years, and I never once mature in that righteousness, I still have that righteousness. The righteousness is not dependent upon me. I may be immature in it, but I still have it. So then how do we grow in this righteousness? And that brings us to the next slide. Is we remind ourselves the truth of the gospel. The truth of scripture. So when you fail, which you will fail, I will fail. I will probably yell at my kids at some point again. I will get angry. The, I don't have to fall into shame because God has still covered me in his righteousness. I don't have to try to work it off. I don't have to beat myself up until I feel righteous again. I come back to the gospel and I remind myself of the truth of the gospel that he made me righteous, that he calls me holy, that he calls me pure, that he has justified me in his eyes. So how do works play out in all of this? What about works? Do we just leave works behind? We're going to answer that question in the next couple weeks. So turn with me, if you will, to Colossians. You're probably already there. Colossians 3. We'll go through uh, verse 11 today, 1 through 11. Next week we'll pick up in verse 12. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is neither neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision and uncircumcised, 
barbarian, scathian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. So he begins this section off. So he, he begins this section off with if then. So there, we've got an if then statement. If then you have been raised with Christ. This uh, idea of if you have been raised with Christ. If you've been raised with Christ is kind of su- a summary of everything we've been learning. That everything was created by Christ and for Christ, right? So everything hinges on Christ. Christ is the center of it all. And if you have died to the world, if you have died to the world and therefore been raised with Christ, if all of these religious things that you thought could make you happy, could, thought, could fulfill you, if you've died to all of those which had an appearance of wisdom and you have ra- been raised with Christ, then, right? So if all of this stuff, then what should we do? Seek the things that are above. This kind of goes to that one slide where it's reminding yourself of the truth of Scripture, It's not work harder for all this. It's seek those things. Remind yourself of those things. Look towards Christ, those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So Christ is seated at the right hand of God, signifying that He has conquered it all. That He is the conquering King. He died for our sin. He was the suffering servant in His first advent. And now He is also the conquering King. King, he is at the right hand of God, he has conquered it all, he has all authority, and we have been raised with him, therefore we should look towards what he has. The idea is that you are no longer under the bondage of all these old traditions. You are now free from the world's legalistic operating systems. So you need to focus on Christ who has freed you. When you focus back on the legalistic operating systems, that is when the flesh regains control. I think of it very much like mountain biking. In mountain biking, when you look at an obstacle, like let's say a tree, and you tell yourself, I do not want to hit that tree. So you keep looking at the tree because you don't want to hit the tree. What are you going to hit? The tree. You look, where do you look is where you're going to go. If I don't want to hit the tree, I need to look at where I want to go. I need to look at the path. So my eye can glance over there real quick, and then I need to be back, right back on the path, because where I look is where I'm going to go. The same is true with our spiritual walk. Where you look is where you're going to go. If you're looking at a sin management system, where all you do is manage your sin, what are you thinking about all the time? Sin. So where are you going to drift towards? Sin. If all I get caught up on is how I can earn my righteousness by not lusting after a girl, by not outbursting in anger, by not stealing or cheating, by any one of those, then I'm focused in on all of that stuff, and that's the way I'm going to drift. So instead of looking towards a sin management system, then I look towards Christ. And as I look towards Christ, I actually... Don't think about that stuff. And because I don't think about it, it's not on the front of my mind. And I don't drift towards all of that stuff. So if you were raised with Christ, if you are free from sin, then why go back to a sin management system that cannot stop sin? But you have been freed from sin. So start looking towards Christ and the spiritual blessings he has given us. 
And the more you focus in on, those, on his spirit, his spirit begins to produce all of those spiritual blessings in your life. So the more you focus in on Christ, the more you remind yourself of who he is and what he has done, the more you look towards God, the more his spirit produces the fruit in you. I, I don't have to conquer my own sin. Not only can I, do I not have to conquer it, but I can't conquer my own sin. But thankfully, he has conquered sin for me. So my job isn't to look towards my sin. My job is to look towards him. Next, Paul restates the reason why we focus on the things of God and not on the things of Christ. Picking up in verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this term for you have died is not a literal death. You have not literally died, but it is a spiritual death. And it is you have died to the things of this world. You have died to those legalistic sin management systems. And you have been raised together and been made alive with him. So if you have died, your life is hidden in Christ. So this is, so what did we die to? We died to all the false promises of sin management. If we think of the world as like one big shopping mall, and all the different worldviews and religions are on sale. It's a big sale. It's way bigger than any Black Friday sale. And everyone in the world is running around and trying to find what will make them happy. So you know the craziness of Black Friday sales, right? I went to one to, just to experience it once. I had a good friend that just loved. She thought uh, it was just amazing. She loved Black Friday. She would like wake up at like 2 a.m. and go get some coffee. And like, man, her whole idea was she could get all of her Christmas shopping done by 10 a.m. on the day after Thanksgiving and then forget about it. So she always talked it up. So one day I was like, okay, I'll go with you. So I went on this Black Friday sale, and we, our first stop was Walmart. And we go into Walmart, and it's pretty busy. It's pretty crowded. But the sales haven't started yet, right? There's going to be like an alarm that goes off. And once that alarm goes off, then everybody can start making a mad dash for what they want. So I'm uh, not really into buying presents. Uh, I feel sorry for my wife. I'm not into buying presents. So, uh, so I wasn't there to do any shopping. I was just there to observe. And I stood back, and as the alarm went off, some, some employees like cut the, the tape, and people started running. And I saw this woman who had her three-year-old kid with her, and she set her three-year-old kid down so she could grab some stuff. And people didn't even see the three-year-old because they were so focused in on the other things. And someone knocked the three-year-old over. And I had to rush in and grab the three-year-old. And I like, brought the three-year-old back from the crowd that was getting ready to trample him. And eventually, the mom remembered, oh, yeah, I have a kid here. And started looking for it. And I was like, here's your kid. It's crazy, isn't it? 
But why do people, why were people there? They, they were hoping that some type of material thing would satisfy, some type of material thing would make them happy. So if we pretend that all the worldviews are on sale, like a Black Friday sale, we kind of get a picture of what's going on in the world, right? Everyone is running around trying to find out what will make them happy, what will work. And they don't mind knocking someone over and trampling them to make it happen. So Paul is saying, you have died to that. You left them all. You're no longer in need of trying on different religions. You're no longer in need of trying on different worldviews. You left that rat race. It's gone. You've died to that. You don't need to prove your worth. You don't need to prove your value. Christ has given you life. You've died to that and your life is hidden with Christ. This term hidden is in the ancient world. Uh, You had to hide your treasure if you really wanted it to be safe, you know, you, you couldn't lock your doors very well. You could try, but if you really wanted your treasure to be safe, you would hide it. And so it's kind of like, we could translate it as like your life is hidden in Fort Knox, right? That's really safe. When we think of the safest place on earth, usually we think of like Fort Knox. That's what he's getting at here. No one can take it. Your life No one can take it. No one can take away the security that you have in Christ. You have full security in Christ. It's safe. Nothing can take it away. And since nothing can take it away, one day you will be put on display with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, this term appears means to be put on display. So one day Christ will be put on display and the whole world will be able to see His glory. And not only Christ will be put on display, but you also with Christ will be put on display. When you have a trophy, do you usually bury it and hide it? Or do you put it on display? If you've really worked hard to earn something. When I was a kid, sometimes we'd get trophies, and I was like, yeah, this is just a pity trophy. And it would go in the trash when we got home. But there were times when I worked really hard for something. All summer long, I'd be at practice for baseball. All summer long, I would work hard. And when I got that trophy, you better believe I brought it home and it was on display for my family to see because I earned it. You will be put on display for God's glory. You are a trophy of God's grace. And he's not putting you on display for your own glory, but you reflect his glory. So he puts you out there to show, hey, look what I have done. I took a bunch of jacked up sinners who were in rebellion against me. And I showed them my grace. And my grace changed who they are. 
You are a trophy of God's grace. And so, one day, He will put you on display. And because you will be put on display, He says then in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So because the therefore here is because you are going to be put on display, because you are a trophy of God's grace that will be put on display, put to death what is earthly in you. Because you have died with Christ and you've been raised with Him, because you've left the mall, because you've quit shopping for what will fulfill you, and have been raised to new life with Christ, and you are a trophy of His grace, then, I like the way the NASB puts it, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. So consider what is earthly. That old way of life as no longer having control. The ESV that I'm reading out of makes it kind of sound like you have to put it to death, right? Put to death, therefore. So it it makes it sound like it's up to you to put all these things away. That's why I like the NASB, consider the members of your earthly body dead. And I like that because it's Christ who has actually put it to to death. It's Christ who has killed it. All those former behaviors, you can't kill. Christ is the one who's killed it. It's our job then to recognize that all those former behaviors are dead. I kind of think of Harper when I think of this. My three-year-old daughter, last summer when she was two, she uh, is the lover of animals in our family. She loves animals. And last year, she found a cricket, and she kind of had that Lenny moment of mice and men, you know, Lenny loves things so much that he kills them. Like he gets the mouse, he pets the mouse until it's dead. Harper had her Lenny moment with this cricket. A cricket. Like of all things you could pick, a cricket. So she found a cricket and she just was like, oh, it's so cute, it's little, tiny, cute. And she just loved this little cricket to death. But she didn't realize that she had killed it. And so she kept it in the back of her tricycle And in this little compartment, and she kept it, sometimes I feel like a bad parent, because she kept it all summer long. (laughs) All summer long. And anytime she would get on her tricycle, she'd ride it around, and she'd come up to me, and she'd be like, you want to see my pet? And she'd get off, and she'd go to the back, and she'd open the compartment, and she'd take out this little cricket that was already dead. And it had been dead for weeks. I mean... It was like, you know how they get all crunchy and nasty. That's where it was at by this time. And she'd be, it's little tiny. It's so cute. I love him. And then she'd put it away for the next time that she was going to make her around. That was her. She hadn't recognized that it was dead, but it was dead. And I think this is a perfect analogy for sin because oftentimes we think our sin isn't that big of a deal. We think it's like this little tiny, cute little sin, right? And so we pull it out every now and then and it's dead. But we pull it out every now and then. We, kinda, we might not even show it off. We might just hold it to ourselves and just think about this sin that's little, cute, tiny sin. Not realizing that it's dead and it's decaying and eventually it's going to stink. We need to consider that it's already dead. Those former behaviors, all these former behaviors are dead already. And we oftentimes we want to pretend like they're alive, but they're not alive. They're dead. So consider the members of your earthly body as dead. So that members of the earthly body, the Colossian heresy had a hint of Gnosticism to it. 
Gnosticism believed that the physical is bad. Everything physical was bad, and everything spiritual was good. Now, this typically had like two different expressions. There was one that was kind of more of an asceticism, uh, where it was like, you have to punish your earthly self, your body, your physical self. You got to punish that badness out of you. But there was another side to it that was like, because you're, you're in your physical form, you're just unnaturally bad. So you live up the natural badness until the day you die. And then you become spiritual and you become naturally good. That was kind of the idea behind some of this heresy. And what Paul is doing to address this her- heresy is he's saying the two are connected. Your spiritual life and your, er- your physical life are connected. You cannot separate your earthly and your physical body from your spiritual life. And because that's the truth, you need to let your spiritual life be in control. Do not let your flesh gain control over you. Next, Paul will give us a couple lists that we should follow. When we let the Spirit control us, the result will be be considering these lists as dead to us. So when you let your Spirit control you, these lists become dead to us, meaning they have no control over you. And he begins this list with a, a list of sexual, this first one is kind of a sexual thing. So it starts off with sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So he starts this list off with sexual, immoral, sexual immorality, which goes along with impurity. And together they cover all the basis for anything that goes against God's design for sex. God created sex. He has a design for it. And when we do it in the appropriate way, it is God-glorifying, and it is good. God called sex good. He has a design for it, and it's a wonderful gift within that design. But man has a tendency to take what God has called good and twist God's design. So any type of sex or sexuality that is twisted is sexually immoral, sexual immorality. And we should consider that dead to us. So not only sexual immorality and impurity, but also passion and evil desire. And these two also go hand in hand and cover any desire that begins to have control over us. Sometimes this might be a good desire that once it gains control, turns evil. The emphasis here is on sexual desire once again. So the idea is that God, because God has created sex as a gift, when we twist it, we begin to have an unhealthy desire for it. Because it can give euphoric feelings. We desire more and more of it. We begin to have an unhealthy passion, an unhealthy desire for it. We begin to believe that sex is what will satisfy us. And in order to let it satisfy, we twist it more and more. So we desire more of it in more twisted ways, hoping that in the shopping mall of happiness, we will finally be satisfied. And the last on this list, in the ESV it says covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, I prefer, I think it's more accurate, greed, which is idolatry. 
So this is last in the list. And in the Greek, it is emphasized in a couple different ways. The first way is it's the only, it's the only aspect of this list that has a definite article before it. So it's the greed. And then it's also uh, emphasized because it has a descriptor, which is idolatry. So it's greed that is idolatry. This is what all of the sexual immorality boils down to. Greed and idolatry. So the greed gives us this picture of a person who just wants more. They don't care how it affects the people around them. They will justify their own actions. They just want more titillation so that they can feel some type of euphoric feeling until it passes and then they will pursue the next conquest that will give them the next euphoric feeling. And it's a constant pursuit, it's a constant chase of something that will never truly satisfy. And all of this reveals that the idol in all of this is yourself. When you're living a life of sexual immorality, you're living a life of idolatry. And you have become your own God. This is really a practice of self-worship. Sexual immorality is really a practice of self-worship. So guys, no matter how much you love that girl, no matter how much you say you love that girl, when you engage in sex outside of God's design, you are practicing self-worship. You are really just worshiping yourself. Girls, the same thing goes for you. So you're in the mall with this huge Black Friday sale, and you're trying on different religions and worldviews, and what it really boils down to is making yourself happy, worshiping yourself. You're not really searching for truth. You're not really living according to how the world was created with moral principles, but you're just in it to make yourself happy. And for this reason, because the world is full of people who are worshiping themselves and don't actually care about God's creation, don't care about a fellow image bearers of Christ, verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. So wrath, God's wrath, and God's love are interconnected. A lot of people say, well, God is a God of love. And I agree with you. God is a God of love. And the, the example I like to go to over and over again is let's say I have a house of love. In my house, we love. We're, we've been established. We've been founded on love. I love my kids. I love my wife. Let's pretend that you have that same house. And the person that you love the most the one that you just are so close to is there with you and you're having a late night dinner and someone breaks into your house and right in front of your eyes, they take the person that you love the most and they brutally torture them for hours on end and force you to watch. And at the end of it all, they kill them. And you look up at them and you say, you know, this is a house of love. We're just so filled with love here. Let's go have some dessert. That would reveal that you didn't actually love that other person. 
but we're using them for your own emotion. No. If you really loved that person, you would be screaming for justice. Your wrath would be boiling up, right? Now, as humans, our wrath is not fully righteous. We, our wrath is, is flawed. It's broken wrath. But God's wrath is true, and it is not broken. It is not flawed. And because He has been watching humanity abuse one another, His own creation that He loves, His wrath is being stirred. And one day, that wrath will come in full pure justice and righteousness. And because of these things, God's wrath is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. And this is just a reminder, and it's so important for us to remember, that although we might not have been as obvious in our sin, we were still stuck in our own idolatry. Every single one of us has been stuck in some form of self-worship. But God has freed us from that. He's taken us out of the mall where the Black Friday sale is happening. And He has made us alive together with Him. We, we have to remember that. And for this reason, He gives us another list. This one has to do less with the sexual side of things and more just with interpersonal relationships. But now you must put... A, us, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So here's our next list. Anger and wrath, they go together. Anger is the emotion. Wrath is the action. Malice is the intent to injure someone. This may be physically, emotionally, or even ruining their reputation. Slander is a specific aspect of malice. And it's causing someone harm through speech, specifically to their reputation. It's going around spreading rumors so that someone's reputation would get hurt. That's slander. And then there's obscene talk, which is vulgarity of speech. When I was a kid and someone used obscene talk, you you could recognize it because someone else might respond with something like, do you kiss your mama with that mouth? Or maybe you feel like you can't say it in church. Have you ever struggled with that? Where like, you've got to clean up your language to go to church? Now, you don't have to clean yourself up to go to church. But if you can't say it in church, you probably shouldn't be saying it outside of church either. But I think we need to talk about another aspect of speech. Because Christians have a way of cleaning up their speech and making it look clean while their heart is still displaying the dirt. In what I call Christian cuss words. You know the words. They almost sound like the real cuss words, but they're just clean enough to make you feel good about yourself. Our words come from our heart. The idea isn't just stop saying bad words and start saying Christian cuss words so that you can feel clean about yourself. The idea is that you are a new creation. Let the new language that defines you come out of your mouth. Now all these vices seem to make sense for people who are frantically looking for the worldview or for the religion that will make them happy. When you are under pressure and don't have the security that comes with being hidden with Christ, 
you begin to slander. You have anger and wrath and malice. Obscene talk. You look for sexuality to fulfill you. It all makes sense. But as we gain more and more security, as we understand our security in Christ, as we look back at that green slide where we are made righteous and we grow in that righteousness by reminding ourselves of who Christ is and who we are, these vices naturally become less and less as they are replaced with us reminding ourselves of who that new person is. Now there's one last vice that is separate from the list, and it's found in verse 9. Do not lie to one another. In the Colossian culture, lying was just a thing. It was a way of life. And because of that, no one knew who to trust. This type of culture degrades pretty quickly. When no one can trust anyone else, everyone is on guard. Community and society begin to erode. If as a church... We want to flourish. If as a church we want to thrive, we have to tell one another the truth. And we tell them one another the truth because it is a part of who we are. We now have a relationship with the author of truth. Truth matters. Not just my opinion of the truth, but what is reality. So we tell the truth, and then he continues by explaining why. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. So we've put off the old self. This is why we tell the truth, because we've put off the old self and we've put on the new self. This is a clothing metaphor. That's what he's getting at right here. This is a clothing metaphor, and it, he's literally saying you take off the old, dirty rags and you put on brand new clothing. So you put on new clothes, so you are now dressed according to the new life God has given you. Now some of you have been distracted this whole time. Some of you have been looking at me, wondering why I am wearing these old, dirty clothes. It's got holes in them. But I might ask you the same thing. Why, although you are a new creation in Christ, are you still wearing those old, dirty clothes and not putting on the new ones? Why, although you've been made new, although God has given you new clothes to wear, are you still wearing the old clothes of your past? Those actions, those lists of sins you are wearing is not who God created you to be. He made you new. You don't need to keep dressing in the old fashion. You are a trophy of God's grace that will be put on display for all all to see. Why do you put on the old clothes? It would be like hunters. If you got the shot of your life at the animal that you couldn't wait to, put, to mount up there to show the world what a great hunter you are. And you took it to the da- taxidermist and you're like, 
And the taxidermist was all, all like, man, this was a great shot. You got this great animal. I can't wait to just do this up for you so you can mount it on your wall and everyone can see it. And then a few weeks go by and you go to pick up and he hands you an inchworm. And he says, display that. That's what we're doing when we're putting on the old clothes. God has made you a new creation to display his grace to the world, and yet we want to put on the old clothes, the old, dingy, dusty, dirty clothes. We want to dress in that old fashion. He finishes this section off with, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So one of the results in living in a mall, trying out all of these different worldviews where everybody is worshiping themselves and everybody is trying to find what will make them happy, part of the results, or one of the results, is division in the community. Because you're constantly trying to find out what will make you happy. And this world is really all about yourself. So you see other groups and other people as obstacles to your own happiness. So society begins to divide into groups. Republican, Democrat, Black, White, Oppressor, Oppressed. The ins and the outs, the cools and the dweebs, the haves and the have-nots. And we begin to define ourselves by how we are not like the other. And Paul is saying, you don't have to live that way anymore. You have left that world's system. You have security in Christ. You don't need to be afraid of the others. But instead, when you see Christ in them, because He is all and in all. Christ is the focal point of it all. He is the solution. We do this sometimes within churches, right? We like to divide up. We like to get some really clean and crisp theological lines. Calvinist. Arminian. Congregational. Presbyterian. And we begin to divide. Charismatic. Cessationist. And we see the other group as the enemy. And what he's saying here is that these other people are not the enemy. Greek and Jew. But if you are found in Christ, those others who have put their faith and trust in Christ is also your brother and sister in Christ. Because Christ is all and in all. We can have unity within Christ. He has made you a new creation. You can wear the new clothes. You are a part of a family and you are all trophies of His grace. There is no division. So this world is full of people who are trying to find what will make them happy. They're trying, to, they're trying on different religions. They're trying on different worldviews. And the entire time they are insecure because they are not sure if it will actually work. But you have security in Christ. 
You have died to that old system and have been raised to something far greater than yourself. You are a trophy of God's grace. The old behaviors are dead. Why pretend that they are still alive? Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you have made us righteous. That you have changed our standing before you. That we don't have to worry about whether or not we're going to lose it. We don't have to worry about whether or not you love us. But we have security in you. And our security is greater than anything man can ever produce. It's far greater than Fort Knox. And for this reason, we can trust you. We don't have to search for happiness. We don't have to run around like mad people on Black Friday trying to find the right deal. You've taken us out of that paradigm. And you've clothed us in new clothes. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to return to the old dusty, dingy clothes but to put on the new clothes you have given us. In your name we pray.